Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Archaeology Podcast Network is sponsored by Codify, a California benefit corporation. Visit Codify at www.codifi.com. Welcome to the Heritage Voices Podcast. Heritage Voices focuses on how CRM and heritage professionals, public employees, tribes, and descendant communities can better work together to protect their heritage. My name is Jessica Uquinto, ethnographer and founder of Living Heritage Anthropology, and my co-host is Lyle Balenqua, Hobi archaeologist, ethnographer, river guide, and educator. This is episode two of Heritage Voices. I'll be your host today, and I'll be interviewing co-host Lyle Balanqua on Hopi perspectives on diversity and anthropology, as well as Grand Canyon. And so this will be part two of the mini-series on Grand Canyon. So welcome to the podcast, Lyle. Lyle is a Hopi archaeologist, ethnographer, educator, and river guide who has worked throughout the Southwest. He also got his degrees at Northern Arizona University, so he's part of the NAU Mafia. Yay. He is also currently on the board of the Grand Canyon Association and is an instructor through the Grand Canyon Association Field Institute, among others. So, Lyle, can you tell us a little bit about what you're up to? Sure. Thank you for having me be a part of this podcast. Um, name is Lyle Bolinqua from the village of Baklavia in 3rd Mesa. Like you mentioned, I, I am part of the NAU group. Uh, I have my bachelor's and master's from there in from the anthropology department. Graduated in 2002 with my master's in the cultural anthropology part. Uh, but at the same time, I was also working concurrently with the National Park Service in Flagstaff, places like Wapaki, Walnut Canyon, Sunset Crater, and then also being duty stationed to other parks throughout the Southwest. Uh, so that's really where I got my hands-on training in terms of archaeology, the science of archaeology, doing survey work, uh, doing a lot of preservation work as well. That was our main focus, uh, was ruins preservation. So working on the standing architecture there in the various parks exposed me to a wide degree of architectural styles and all the inherent implications that architecture has within it in terms of social organization, social identity, uh, movement of people based on architectural styles from one spot to the other. So really, you know, gave me a good understanding of what my ancestors were doing back in the day and which carries over uh, to my current line of work where I've been able to parlay all of that experience, um, being very fortunate to find other ways to utilize 
those experiences in in my career. So working as an archaeologist still, uh, but also doing a lot of public education work as a river guide uh, through nonprofit work, speaking to various organizations and groups about prehistory, Hopi culture, preservation, politics, you know, getting involved in some of the uh, preservation of of ancestral lands that are off the reservation right now. So fortunate to be able to do a lot of different things with with that great experience coming out of NAU. All right. So can you talk a little bit about what inspired you in the first place to want to go into anthropology? I know that anthropology has kind of a, a checkered past at Hopi. So what what made that something mm-hmm. that you wanted to pursue? Yeah, you know, that's always a, a good thing to talk about. Um, I, I I tell people that I'm, again, very fortunate to come from a family that uh, is really based in the outdoors. You know, my, my family are farmers and ranchers. Uh, we're hikers, we're hunters, we're fishermen. So growing up, being in the outdoors was just a part of daily life, especially out on our ranch and our fields. You know, there's two different components there in terms of the farming really teaches you some of the cultural or gives you the cultural foundation of what Hopi stands for. And then within our ranch lands, there's just archaeology all over. You know, I mean, that's the case out at Hopi. You can't go anywhere without running into it. And we may not necessarily view it as archaeology. We just know that it's some part of our ancestral past, that people were living there before us. And so growing up, I was able to experience all that learning more of the cultural history behind it. And my parents were very proactive in encouraging me to uh, experience that. You know, one, one good example is, you know, growing up as a, as a kid, I never got to go to Disneyland or SeaWorld. You know, my parents would put me in the car and during the summer we'd go to places like Mesa Verde and Chaco Canyon and Wapatki. And it was really during those trips that, you know, really Im- impressed upon me who I was, maybe at that early age, I didn't really quite understand all the complex history behind it. You know, when my dad or somebody would tell me that you are related to these people that lived here, um, it didn't, it wasn't that clear to me what he was talking about. Only later in life did um, a lot of that detail come to the surface um, as I matured and uh, grew up within the culture, you take on different responsibilities. And one of those is uh, being an active participant in certain ceremonies and things of that nature that really show you what our ancestors were, were doing back in the day, I guess. You know, we're not just going through the motions. We're literally, <clears throat> in some cases, reenacting our history when we do our ceremonies. And so it's a constant reminder of, of who we are and where we come from. You know, you take all that and coming out of high school, I was a fairly okay average student in high school. Uh, but when I got to the university setting as an undergraduate, uh, it didn't translate that well. It was a totally different environment for me and I struggled. My first two semesters, my first year, in fact, year and a half in the university was, was pretty rough. I tried different majors. One thing that always stuck with me was writing, but being an English major in the university setting uh, was a little bit difficult for me, uh, and I struggled with that. And so by the end of my second year, I was ready to, to call it quits and throw in the towel, and I was working in construction 
as a part-time job at the time, uh, doing masonry and concrete work. And so I was working with my hands, really enjoyed it, got a good feel for it, uh, moved into working with custom flagstone type materials, building patios and fireplaces and all of these high-end type of uh, projects. Really artistic, again, utilizing hands-on skills. And it was really satisfying to me to be able to start a project um, and at the end of the day, see your progress. And so I was more than happy to ditch the college career and go into uh, keep doing what I was doing with that. I was making decent money and, and progressing pretty well. So in the summer of 1996, I believe, I was ready to, to move on. And um, my mother really wasn't too thrilled with my idea of leaving college. She wanted me to stick it out and was kind of begging me to stay in school or at least give it one more shot and I was struggling with that idea and I just happened to be back out at home on Hopi at our village of Baklavi and uh, come to find out there was a project going on down uh, in the canyon below our village there where where there's a series of springs and it turns out that uh, one of our professors Dr. Miguel Vasquez was doing some springs restoration work or, or terrace garden work down in that area and uh, my dad you know told me about the project and I had known Dr. Vasquez previously just because I, I played football with his son in high school but really had never considered you know anthropology as a as a major until going down and talking with him about it and uh, he's really the one that you know gave me some encouragement to maybe try anthropology as a major and it just so happened that there was a program that would be coming up sponsored by the NAU Anthropology Department, uh, the National Park Service and Flagstaff, and the Hopi Foundation out at Hopi. And they were going to put together a ruins preservation workshop for Native students. Again, with my background in the construction work and some of that cultural teaching, it really was an, an opportunity you know, that I had never considered before. And so in order to do the workshop, you know, I, it required me to kind of continue my college education. And so I stuck it out. I decided to go back, much to my mother's, you know, joy, and um, went back into the university world and really started to focus on, on anthropology, completely changed my course direction, um, was involved in this summer program. You know, we spent a few months really getting into the field of archaeology. You know, it wasn't just going out to the to the sites and putting mud and mortar, you know, and stone back into the walls. It was really learning some of the fundamentals of, of archaeology, doing a lot of site visitation throughout the Four Corners, uh, talking with other professors um, like Dr. Chris Downham, he was another co-lead on this program. And so he really gave us a good introduction to what archaeology in the Southwest was all about. And for me, that was just all it took really was, um, you know, these crossroads meet sometimes during your life. And you're very fortunate to be there at that time. And, um, you know, I was able to maintain uh, my employment with the Park Service. I really started working there in 1997 as a student temporary employer and um, as an undergraduate they kept me in that program and then when I graduated with my bachelor's in 1999 they said well we can only keep you on for a certain amount of time as a seasonal if you do choose not to go back to school and you know I had never really considered 
for me, getting a bachelor's was, you know, kind of it. I had never thought of going back to school to continue my education and getting a master's degree. Um, I had some encouragement from another Hopi colleague of mine who was in that program, Lloyd Masayamtua. He had made the decision uh, the semester before me to continue on with the Park Service and in doing so, uh, entering the master's degree program there at NAU. And so he set, you know, the, the precedent for me. He encouraged me as well, as long as, uh, you know, people in my family, they really started to see that the field of anthropology and archaeology could have tangible benefits to Hopi people. And again, at this time, there was a, a really good movement, positive movement within the Hopi tribe itself through the Hopi Cultural Preservation Office, who was really under their director, Lee Kowanwisioma, really making a lot of headway in terms of being uh, a forerunner in, in tribal consultation and making it known that Hopi have interests and questions about our ancestral past that deserve to be included in, you know, federal undertakings and, and state and everything else. And so I had a lot of encouragement through that office as well. Ultimately, all these things came together and laid a good foundation for me to continue on. I made a decision to apply to the graduate program uh, and continue my employment with the Park Service uh, under a different program, the SCEP program. I think it's Student Career Experience Program, something like that. And so I was able to maintain my employment. And then once I graduated with my master's in 2002, uh, there was my job basically waiting for me. And I just migrated into a full-time position there with the Park Service ended up staying there for another five or six years, you know, learning a lot. And so um, just, a, you know, kind of a roundabout backdoor way getting into archaeology, but it's paid off a lot for, for myself and being involved in uh, working with the Hopi tribe and other tribes and, you know, helping to preserve and protect our, our cultural heritage here in the Southwest. There's a lot of talk right now about being inclusive in, in anthropology and archaeology and trying to reach a more diverse group. And you mentioned some of the, the struggles that you went through and then some of the things that helped you to pursue archaeology. So could you talk about what you think could be done to make anthropology and archaeology more inclusive and also maybe what you would say to Native Americans that are potentially interested in going into this field and and what might what advice you might give them to help them along that path. You know, that's that's a issue that I think about constantly even you know, for myself when I talk to native groups, uh, students whether it's doing field work or on the river or in the classroom, it's always, you know, somewhat difficult to try and make the pitch to continue to get students, native students, to enter into this field. I necessarily can't speak for other tribes, but at least from the Hopi perspective, you know, I think we're fortunate that we have been able to maintain, you know, to to a certain degree, a, a good portion of our cultural foundations, our, our traditions and values. Some of those things are very strong out at Hopi and continue to be uh, reiterated and passed down, you know, to the younger generation. Of course, they're inundated now with a lot of uh, the technological influence, and maybe that doesn't 
seem so appealing or, or the, the cultural st- side of things may get lost somewhere in there. I guess I have to just try and use my own experiences in, in relating what I've been able to learn through the science of archaeology and anthropology showing them you know the benefits of maintaining our culture and learning more about it it's been you know being involved in these fields has opened uh, many doors for me you know in terms of being able to learn about who we are as Hopi people and where we come from you know we we have our stories our songs our prayers that talk about these places you know and sometimes they may seem very far off or kind of in a, a mystical setting so to speak but it's it it's a completely different experience to be able to go and see these places firsthand. So you may hear about it in an oral history, but then it takes on a whole new meaning when you actually go and visit these sites and get a feel and see how our ancestors were actually living, you know, 800, 1,000 years ago or even further back. How we recruit students is i think is is still a difficult uh task at least in, from my perspective you know a lot of students nowadays may look at more fast-paced careers you know something that has a, a shiny surface so to speak it's glossy you know being an archaeologist being an anthropologist isn't always that case sometimes you really uh, have to work at it in terms of you know literally being in the field sometimes and it's uncomfortable and so I don't think it's cut out for everybody but I definitely know that there are students out there who would find this attractive in terms of what it can benefit them their families our our people you know in terms of uh, recording our history and so it's one of those things where it's something that you can't necessarily just talk about in a classroom. So if I go to a classroom, say to a Hopi high school classroom or some other youth group, I can talk to them all I want and show pictures and try and impress upon them what what I'm what I've been able to learn as a, as an archaeologist, and that will give them some idea. But again, it's it takes you know the actual getting out there, and I think. Hopi has made some attempts through various programs um, to to make this happen. One that is still kind of hanging on there barely, but it's the Hopi Footprints Program. Uh, this was initiated through the Hopi Culture Preservation Office and folks at NAU like Dr. George Gummerman, uh, Joelle Clark, and a couple other folks that were involved in, in the program work. And what that really, what, it, what its goal was, was really to show students the both sides of the story, so to speak, working with Hopi elders, working with the traditional knowledge, taking the students to these ancestral sites, but then also pairing it up with the archaeological perspectives and the science behind it, you know, looking at things like ceramic typologies and uh, all the stuff we learn, you know, as, as archaeologists and how we date sites and how we identify these ancestral settlements. So I think that was really successful in getting some interest. The hard part, I guess, is is when students need to make that decision to either continue on into a university setting you know, again, that's a difficult jump sometimes from 
from high school into, you know, a university world. And so trying to make that transition a little easier for them, uh, I think, is is pretty paramount to one getting them to stick it out and, and stay in school. Um, of course, funding and, and distance and traditions all have an influence in terms of, you know, how a individual Hopi student excels in, in the university setting. There's a lot to do as a Hopi person. Um, and sometimes it, you may feel a little bit of guilt or, or you know, it's, a con- it's something on your conscience when you leave the reservation or you leave that family life to go to university and be away from home for a while. It's a sacrifice on, on many fronts time money participation so you know it's just it's just a it's just a reality that you know Hopi students have to deal with and it's probably not very different than many other students you know from different backgrounds but for Hopi maybe it just seems a little bit more focused and concentrated in terms of its overall impacts but you know I I think it's it's just a matter of kind of you you have to do a lot of searching from my perspective in terms of if I'm out there recruiting for a student or a group of students uh, again you look at the program that I went through you know when I was you know making this transition into archaeology that workshop during that summer I think there was nine of us in that workshop and out of it three of us continued on you know into doing work with the park service and so you have to throw a wide net and reach as try and reach as many students as possible i think their family upbringing has a lot to do with how they view the the archaeological world so to speak there is some of that stigma still attached to it but it's up to folks like myself and other hopis involved in this field to you know show the benefits and show that yes you know it has had archaeology and anthropology in general has had a a um, impact on hopi culture some of it negative but we're reversing that trend now and becoming or being able to utilize these sciences for the benefit of our own culture and I think one of the things that you know needs to be impressed upon any would-be archaeology student coming in from from the Hopi side is that you know we need to put our priorities as paramount. Hopi does have questions about our ancestors and it seeks to find those answers so that we have a better understanding of who we are in this modern day and what can we utilize from that history to better benefit our current state, you know. So it's it's definitely I think a a difficult task getting students to be interested in in archaeology but again I think that there are those individuals out there that you know were probably or not unlike how I was growing up in terms of being out on the landscape um, and being willing to learn that cultural history. But again, it's just like any other major, I guess, you know, you have to, you have to do the book time. You have to do the academic side to really make it come full circle in some, to some degree. And then again, it's, again, it's another thing of finding employment. There's not a whole lot of archaeological work going on out at Hopi, per se. We don't have a huge archaeology crew. We have one Hopi archaeologist working in the tribal department right now. And a lot of that is, you know, due to budget constraints and things of that nature. So most of the archaeology jobs are off the reservation or working for private companies or the federal agencies. And so that also, again, requires you maybe to relocate off home and go somewhere else, which, again, takes you away from all the cultural stuff that 
that happens out at Hopi and may put a strain on you and your family. So those are some of the obstacles that uh, we, we face in terms of finding, just getting the students through the door, through the university setting, and then once they come out, where do we place them and what do we, you know, how do we utilize their skills? So one of our goals, I know, is while we want to implement a training program for Hopi students now, uh, another part of that is, is okay, we need to find work for these folks once they go through the training. So there's ideas floating around out there about uh, putting together our own contract crews to go out and do you know some of that work that initially we may only be brought to the consultation table to talk about these projects but somewhere down the line uh, it would be nice to have our own Hopi crews to go out and do those work so those are things that we continually work on and talk about and I think for some of us that are kind of intermediaries between the tribal government federal agencies um, kind of filling in that independent role so to speak uh, that's really where our our work lies in terms of not just finding work for ourselves, but being proactive and in, in developing these programs so that, um, you know, we can go talk to students and say, hey, if you finish, if you get through this program, there's a job waiting for you. So that's one, you know, one carrot at the end of the stick to kind of help students get through. Yeah, I mean, it seems like something like that, kind of like what Zuni actually had or has, I'm not sure if it's yeah. still running the Zuni Cultural Resource Enterprise. But yeah, it seems like something like that could be really beneficial for everybody. I mean, because you could have archaeologists, you could have ethnographers, you could have tribal monitors, kind of a a one-stop shop, if you will, for people that are trying to have more of an indigenous perspective in their work. It seems like a, a fantastic idea. I hope that that works out. Yeah. So it looks like we're at a good point to take a break real quick. So we'll be back in a few moments. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. All right. So welcome back to the podcast. So I think basically we could... We could keep talking about this for yeah. <laughs> a really long time. Um, maybe we'll we'll have to do a an episode or something just dedicated to this topic. Maybe even have a panel or something. I don't know, because it it uh, definitely is an interesting one. But so for right now, what I'd like to do is I'd like to switch over to talking about the Grand Canyon again. So. Obviously, the Grand Canyon is a a hugely important place to the Hopi 
and Lyle here is a board member for the Grand Canyon Association and he's a Grand Canyon River runner. So maybe Lyle, if you could first just start out talking about how you got into river running, not that you have to give much explanation because I think anyone that's been on the river knows how magical that it is. But if you want to talk about that a little, talk about being a board member for Grand Canyon Association, just basically your different work and, and connections to the Grand Canyon. Sure. You know, I, in May of 2002, uh, I walked across that stage at NAU and received my master's degree. Uh, went home, had a celebration party, got up the next morning, drove to work, and then they picked me up and drove me to Lease Ferry and put me on a boat and showed me down the river for 21 days. That is quite um, a graduation <laughs> celebration right yeah. there. <clears throat> so that the the background on that is, you know, I was working with the Park Service here in Flagstaff in archaeology and the Grand Canyon National Park was doing monitoring and documentation of sites along the river corridor. And so they were uh, asking for assistance from various Park Service units. And so Flagstaff areas, uh, we had a sizable crew back then. Um, You know, we were able to shuffle um, people around and send them off to do different work in different parks. And so <clears throat> we were all fortunate um, to get a river trip out of it. I think five or six of us went down in various stages. And so that was my first introduction to the river in the Grand Canyon, so to speak. Um, my history, you know, with, with the river itself, you know, as, as a kid, you know, my dad and parents would take me up to Lee's Ferry and we'd do a lot of fishing up there. And I'd see the boatmen there, you know, and always wondered uh, what they were up to and kind of had no idea, of course, what a, what a river runner was. Um, There's a little riffle right there at Lee's Ferry called the Perea Riffle. And it has a little bit of splash to it and it makes noise. And so as a as a kid, you know, I was pretty frightened by what that looked like because it just looked like a, a raging river. And I have to laugh and tell this story, you know, now that when we get on the river and we float over it, you know, this is just the beginning of, you know, other stuff coming down river. And so I've always had that connection with the water, at least in that sense. Uh, but it wasn't until 2002 that, you know, we, what, what an introduction to, to the Grand Canyon uh, and, and the inner corridor in terms of spending so much time and looking at so much archaeology and really you know by the end of that trip having uh, uh i was i was bit by the bug of wanting to do more work i didn't really you know i was there as an archaeologist so i was more or less a passenger uh, the guides <clears throat> that we were with uh, through the National Park Service, you know, of course, let me row the boat a little bit here and there. And so, you know, that, that gave me a, a little bit of an introduction of what uh, what life down on the river could be like. Um, but it wasn't until a few years later, in 2006 and going into 2007, that I really started pursuing river guiding, you know, as a part-time career. And uh, I was offered, uh, or there was another program that came about called the Native American Guide Training Program, which at the time was being offered in partnership through a program at NAU. It was being run by another uh, Native guide, Nikki Cooley, who is uh, Navajo and had been working as a, a river guide 
for one of the commercial companies in the canyon. And this was really her initiative in terms of, again, wanting to find folks who would be willing to serve as guides from, from a Native American background, tribes that had uh, an affiliation with the Grand Canyon itself. And so in 2007, I did another river trip with the Park Service. It was a training trip, again, you know, spending multiple days down there uh, with representatives from different companies, guides. You know, they, they basically send guides on this trip in the spring, various what they call instructors, you know, learning about the geology, the hydrology, the botany, the, the animals, and of course, archaeology. We each have a a role to fill there in terms of teaching folks about the archaeology or whatever our specialty is down in the Grand Canyon. And immediately following that, this Native American guide training program was offered and I applied and lucked out and was accepted. And that was the first year that this program had been offered. And so we spent 10 days on the San Juan River learning the fundamentals of, of river guiding. And river guiding is such that you never learn it all, you know, in one shot. Even to this day, 10 years later, uh, working on the river, I, I learned things all the time on different trips, working with different guides. So it was then that... Um, I got that first real literally jumping into the water, so to speak, and, and getting that experience at the time. And still today, NAU has an outdoor river program. And so I was able to transition from that training program into employment, uh, working as a river guide with the NAU river program up, up on the San Juan River mainly. And then as it progressed, the program has steadily built up over the years. You know, in the early days, we were just operating out of a kind of like a box car in the back of the old gym there on the side of the university. We got a new program manager, Chad Stone, who really brought a lot of experience and helped build the program up. And we started expanding our operations from just to San Juan, which, you know, is a four hour drive from Flagstaff and wasn't a whole a whole lot of cost effective for the program. We probably weren't making very much money on those trips. And so we started looking at local rivers and, and senses of uh, what is more viable. And so we started running trips on the Diamond Down stretch of the Grand Canyon, which is, you know, the last 50 miles of the river past Diamond Creek, which for the first day and a half, you know, still has decent rapids and still has real good current. And then for the latter part of that, you're you're basically on flat water, but it's, it's still within the Grand Canyon and you still get a lot of good experience down there. Uh, then we started running trips on the Verde River and the Salt River. And so... You know, again, just being fortunate to combine, take that archaeology background and, of course, being a Native person, being really able to combine all of that into what the what the river guiding gave me was a new forum to teach and still continue to learn about uh, my cultural history. So that continues to this day in terms of uh, what I do when I'm down on the river. Of course, I'm talking a lot about Hopi ancestry and the archaeology behind it. And really serving as that uh, real life example of what a real Indian does in the modern day and still trying to, again, you know, just like the archaeology component, we're always trying to recruit more natives to come down on the river. And the river is a great, it's a great classroom. It doesn't matter what you do in life. There's always an opportunity for that whatever you choose to do in life to to present that information and so it's just a good a good uh, opportunity for folks from different backgrounds to learn a whole lot about who we are as native people that experience translated over into 
my being asked or nominated to serve on the board of the Grand Canyon Association. I've been working in and around the canyon now for my whole career, basically, either as an archaeologist or as a, as a guide. And so the opportunity to serve on the board was a whole new realm for me. I have no, you know, coming from the federal background, working for the tribes, and now really finding myself being thrust into the nonprofit world is a whole new experience for me. And that was really the challenge for me, which I accepted and I wanted, was to learn something new about organizational work. And given my affiliation, not just from a tribal standpoint, but from my career with the Grand Canyon, I felt like it was a, a good fit for me. And, uh, you know, the Grand Canyon Association is is the nonprofit arm of the National Park Service for the Grand Canyon. So we do a lot of fundraising uh, to support projects there at the Grand Canyon. That's our main focus in terms of what our purpose is, is helping the Park Service fulfill its mission of presenting and preserving the Grand Canyon to the larger, you know, the larger world out there. And so our fundraising efforts cover a wide range of projects there at the Grand Canyon. There's a new trailhead up at Bright Angel Trail that was funded in part by the Grand Canyon Association. The greenhouse there at the Grand Canyon has been a recipient of funds and support from the association. And then one thing that I'm really proud of and heavily involved in is uh, the restoration work that's currently ongoing at Desert View Watchtower, which was recently transferred back into the custody to I guess you could say, of the National Park Service. And so now the NPS manages and maintains that structure, which has a huge Hopi history behind it in terms of not only its influence and architecture, but within the murals inside that were painted by Fred Cabote when it was completed there. So what the Park Service wants to do in consultation with all the affiliated tribes is turn that park, turn that area of the park into a a tribal park where all the tribes can be represented and it's a good area for folks to come and really have an indigenous focus of the Grand Canyon and Grand Canyon Association has had a large part in terms of supporting and funding the work that's ongoing there and that what the what that area will will transition into in the next few years. So, you know, I'm, I'm proud to be a part of the group there. A lot of it is over my head sometimes in terms of the finance and governance of uh, what a board does, but it's all a learning challenge for me, and, you know, I'm enjoying my time there, so glad to be a part of it. So could you talk about what that means to you or to the tribe to have a place at Grand Canyon to tell your story. It's always been a struggle to present an accurate history of, of indigenous people there at the Grand Canyon. You know, a lot of times all you see is the the niceties of interpretation. There's a lot of history between the native folks there and the National Park Service and how the National Park there at Grand Canyon has come to be established. Some of that history is not positive. And so What I think this area at Desert View Watchtower provides is an opportunity for Native people to to tell the whole story, not just what, you know, people want to see, but there's a lot that Native people have to talk about, and this area 
gives us that opportunity to present who we are, not just on paper or in an interpretive sign, but you really will be given the opportunity to come and see what it's like to be a Native American here, you know, in 2016 or in this day and age. What we would like to see is that we are bringing a true representation of culture into that area. And so it's more than just demonstrations. It's more than just folks coming to talk. It's it's about providing us a, a living space where, you know, in our consultation meetings with the various tribes, we talk about the Grand Canyon as a home, not just a spiritual home, but a physical place where we reside at. And so what we would like to see happen there at the Watchtower is that come to fruition in terms of tribes having a real home there in the Grand Canyon. And, you know, there's a lot of politics behind it, but ultimately it's giving us the opportunity to present a true story of how we want to be viewed and how we we're doing our own interpretation, so to speak. And so it's not through the lens of some park service writer, you know, back in Washington, D.C. It's the true uh, day-to-day realities, the, the positives and the negatives of what it's like to be an indigenous person here living around the Grand Canyon. Okay, so we're going to take our final break real quick, and then when we get back, we will just jump right into it. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. So as far as being a Hopi person, what would you like to highlight to visitors at Grand Canyon about the Hopi connection to the place? Through our research from the Hopi side, you know, Hopi has been involved in numerous projects through the Park Service, through the USGS, and other federal agencies that operate in and around the Grand Canyon. And a lot of it is dealing with the archaeology, the prehistory of our ancestors. But at the end of the day, when we are done looking at that through the scientific lens, you know, we want people to know that we still have a connection to that place, that it's not simply rooted in the prehistoric era, which is a scientific designation. It's almost static. And you think of when you hear when you hear the term prehistoric, it doesn't allow you to move forward into the modern day. It, it keeps you back in the past and so we like for people to know that we're still here that we still have a daily cultural connection to the Grand Canyon and that through our culture through our songs through our stories through our prayers our connection to the Grand Canyon is reinforced 
through various means and then also being able to come to the table literally during consultation and provide meaningful input about interpretation, about our history, about things that the Park Service has ongoing that involve Native Americans. We want to be a part of it. And so it's really about showing the physical, tangible proof that we're still there and that you know we would like to have that maintained into the future and so that's one thing that I I try and impress upon anybody that I talk with when I'm at the Grand Canyon whether it's through the GCA board or I'm on a river trip or some other aspect of work is that Hopi people and other natives the other 10 affiliated tribes we are still a viable part of the Grand Canyon and our history isn't relegated to a thousand years ago that it's an ongoing process and that we would like for that to be maintained and that we would like to have a presence there and a say in what the Park Service does at the Grand Canyon. And, you know, that really translates into things that are going on right now, particularly with environmental issues concerning the the Grand Canyon landscape. Grand Canyon is faced with a lot of obstacles and or, or pressures to be developed, whether it's uranium mining in and around the park, water issues there within the park, and then, of course, dealing with the confluence issue there at the Little Colorado River in Colorado area. It's um, It becomes paramount when these issues are brought to the surface and people ask, well, why is this area important to Hopi people? It's A lot of it is rooted in, in our ancestry, of course. You know, the confluence area is a big part of our origin stories as Hopi people and other tribes as well. And so who we are is literally physically embedded there within the Grand Canyon. But beyond that, you know, again, it's it's more than just saying it's an, an important area for us because of ancestry. It's it's important to us because it still has a modern day role, you know, in, in our everyday life. And so when these issues come to the surface, that's what we are striving to put forth in that, you know, we we value the idea of wilderness that we value the idea of solitude and tranquility these are things that are necessary not just so that we can continue to carry out our culture but i think these are things that are necessary as human beings on the earth in that um we we find ourselves so removed sometimes from the the very basic nature of of where we live and modern technology has a big hand in in taking us away from that and the economics of making a living are very paramount in that so places like the confluence and the grand canyon are are necessary to the just the basic survival of who we are as human people so that we remember that we are all we all have a role and an influence on how what is happening to to the earth and and how we are contributing to that and so I, I think through our work with various organizations and through the consultation work, we like to bring all of those ideas and values to the table so that folks don't just see a one-sided government perspective, but they're getting uh, a true story from all the affiliated tribes. I think it's very fitting that you're talking about being a river runner at the Grand Canyon because in a sense, the Hopis were the first river runners of the Grand Canyon. So I don't know if, if that's a story that you want to talk about at all. Generally, you know, I mean, uh, yes, there's, I, you know, sometimes when I talk about the river, especially when I'm on the river to various groups, you know, we all hear about John Wesley Powell being the first 
person in history to navigate through the Grand Canyon on the Colorado River. You know, and I, I make a joke out of that, that, you know, that's that's not always the case from the Hopi perspective and that we do have a story, a, a history of of a Hopi person, a young boy uh, making that journey where he started from. We're not exactly sure, but we know that he started somewhere up above the Grand Canyon and entered into the river via a cottonwood a boat made out of a cottonwood root or, or tree and making that way down. And there's there's a little bit of variation to the story itself. Ultimately, you know, he his adventures are such that he meets different tribal groups, different people along his journey. There's a lot of spiritual metaphor within the story itself. You know, and, there, and there's, there's literature out there for people to go ahead and, and if they want to know all the details about it, it's it's detailed in different areas but again that that's that's just another example of our connection to the Grand Canyon in that it's a, it's a it's a major part of our history that the canyon history there and and how it's influenced modern day Hopi culture you know the the implications of that story are that this boy journeyed through hardship and ultimately returned back to Hopi or back to his people with a greater understanding and greater knowledge of who he is and what he can contribute to the community. And so as a, a bigger implication for Hopi people in the sense that it's not just talking about going down the river, but for some ceremonies and clans out at Hopi, those foundations were laid or, or garnered through those through that adventure of this one individual. And so it's not just saying that we were the first to plant our flag there, but it's about the, the results of that hardship and journey that that he undertook that are still played out to this day so you know we can't put a date on that story unlike john wesley powell we can say you know in the 1800s he did this well we don't know exactly when but that's really not important the the, what's important is that he made this journey and the results of his adventures are still played out today some aspects of hopi culture so um yeah that that story is always uh, a good introduction for folks to who who may only know can lore from the Anglo perspective and then they come to find out that the indigenous folks have an entirely different history about it so again it's just about providing a more holistic understanding of what the Grand Canyon represents all right and I'm glad that you had brought up in the the previous discussion too the escalade or the the confluence which is a definitely a hot topic right now but I know that you're also working on another project related to Grand Canyon, another outreach program. So do you want to talk a little bit about what you're doing there? Sure. Currently, there's a proposal to expand the boundaries of Grand Canyon National Park. Uh, it's called the Greater Grand Canyon National Monument Proposal, and it's really looking to uh, add lands to the protection of, 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 it's looking to preserve lands and protect lands that are the watersheds of the areas surrounding the immediate Grand Canyon Park area. So, you know, the water that's in the Grand Canyon comes from various sources. It's not just coming straight out of Lake Powell. There's a lot of side canyons and watersheds that feed into the, the Grand Canyon area. And so what this proposal seeks to do is expand some of the boundaries or provide federal protection for these areas. And really they're looking at the impacts from heavy industry in terms of the mining activities that take place like uranium. And so the implications or the impacts that those 
type of activities have upon watersheds uh, have a direct impact on the inner canyon corridor and so this proposal seeks to increase the protection for those lands and and of course within those lands there's a, a whole contingent of cultural history there and, you know there's there's still a part of Hopi ancestry tied in with that area and so from the Hopi perspective it just it's it's another it's another way to continue to advocate for the protection and preservation of not just a the landscape itself, but the cultural landscape that we maintain about these areas. And so it's, it's we look at it in, in the greater good of helping to protect our origin place, so to speak, but providing just a, a greater protection for lands that may see negative impacts into the future. Well, I think we're going to have to stop it there for today, but... I'm, I'm sure there's many, many more topics that we could talk about in the future. Sure. So thank you again, Lyle, for, for being here. Thank you. And just want to put in a, a plug real quick for Lyle's blog. It's really interesting if you um, haven't read it. What's the, the address? Okay. Um, it's on WordPress. It's anglesandmomentum.wordpress.com something like that but angles and momentum yeah and I'm not a very prolific writer you know it's been in it's been up and running for about a year and I have 12 posts on there so far but hoping to increase the output and as I work on things uh, these ideas come forth and I'm hoping to have a new piece about the confluence here within the next month hopefully within the next couple weeks actually so yeah come and visit and read a story or two and see what's going on all right well thank you again lyle so to learn more about the grand canyon association or to donate check out www.grandcanyon.org and while you're there check out the grand canyon association field institute which features unforgettable educational adventures and if you're lucky you might even get our very own lyle balenqua as your host I would like to take a moment to thank the Museum of Northern Arizona for hosting Lyle Belenqua and I here today to record these episodes. First, the intro episode, and then my interview with Lyle. The Museum of Northern Arizona, they've done a really fantastic job of integrating tribal perspectives into their curation facilities. They did extensive consultation in developing their new curation facility, and it was really impressive what they were able to come up with in conjunction with the tribes. So maybe at some point we'll have to talk to somebody from the museum. But in the meantime, thank you again for hosting us here today. Thanks for listening to the Heritage Voices podcast. You can find show notes at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash heritage voices. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Music Store. Also, if you like the show, please share with your friends or write us a review. If you have any questions, comments, or show suggestions, please reach out to me at jessica at livingheritageanthropology.org or you can find me on Facebook through Living Heritage Anthropology or on Twitter at Living Heritage A. As always, thank you to Lyle Blanqua and Jason Nez for their collaboration on our incredible logo. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and edited by Chris Sims. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. 
Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pro.